Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I am both an Israeli and an American. I was born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the IDF, mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the first Lebanon war in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. Finally, after seven weeks of war, some of the hostages will be released from captivity. The Israeli cabinets, the war cabinet and the general cabinet, as well as the Israeli government, have approved the agreement. This episode is recorded a couple of days before the first hostages will be released. We know Hamas is anything but honest, and so all is predicated on Hamas actually following through. Past experience shows that even from the moment the deal goes into effect, there's no certainty that Hamas will comply. An example of that is nine years ago. At the culmination of battles during Operation Protective Edge, a ceasefire was announced. About an hour after the start of the ceasefire, Hamas shot and killed an IDF soldier named Hadar Goldin, then took his body hostage and held onto it until this very day. Having said that, the general terms appear to be as follows. Hamas were released 50 Israeli hostages, mainly children and their mothers and other women, in increments of 10 per day for the first three days and 20 on the fourth day. The agreement emphasizes that the release will be of live hostages and not bodies. In return, Israel will cease fire for four days and release about 150 prisoners from Israeli jail. That's a three to one ratio. During the four days, Israel also agrees to refrain from aerial activity for six hours each day of the ceasefire. There's a possibility of continuing the ceasefire as long as Hamas releases 10 hostages per day with an emphasis on children, women, and elderly. For each 10 released hostages, Israel released 30 prisoners. None that have blood on their hands. None that succeeded in murdering Jews. The prisoners let out of Israeli jail will also be women and minors. This approved agreement is for 10 days. So basically, if all goes well, and I stress, if all goes well, we Israelis will see up to 100 of our hostages released and the ceasefire will last for 10 days. Now, one more word about Israel's refraining from aerial activity for six hours each day of the ceasefire. Both the Israeli Defense Forces and the Shin Bet, the Secret Service, clarified that they have intelligence capabilities even during the ceasefire days to monitor everything that needs to be monitored. We'll leave it at that. Now, who on the Israeli side is actually in opposition to this agreement? The first to oppose the deal is a political party named Otsma Yehudit, which means, in English, Jewish power. This party is part of the Israeli government and has three ministers out of 38 total. The head of the party is a man named Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is an ultra-right and religious Jew. He is the Minister of Internal Security, otherwise known as the Minister of Police. And he claims, or rather yet his party claims, that the agreement should include all the hostages. 
The ceasefire endangers our ground forces, they say, in Gaza, and will harm the war effort. The existing agreement will cause a significant decrease in the chances of returning the other hostages. They further say that once women and children are released, it'll leave in Gaza mostly adult men. This will increase the international pressure on Israel to stop the fighting, or at least reduce it significantly. Otsma Yudit, Jewish power, added, Our demands is the release of everyone, but on our terms, which are the continued elimination of Hamas. This will create a deterrent for other enemies around us who are planning more atrocities like October 7. Of course, others argue that Hamas has no intention and no interest in releasing all the prisoners because they are their lifeline. So, let's release who we can now, children and women, and try to get the next agreement within a few days. More opposition comes from Israeli organizations, some Israeli organizations, and some Israeli civilians. These organizations and civilians can appeal the government decision only at the Israeli Supreme Court. The rule is that in the case of terrorist prisoners that are about to be let go, with blood on their hands, which means terrorist prisoners that murdered Israelis, the families of those victims will have 48 hours to appeal in front of the court. Some have also already appealed, even though none of the terrorist prisoners succeeded in murdering attempts. An Israeli form named Choose Life, representing some of the bereaved families and other victims of terror, together with a man named Eliyahu Liebman, the father of Eliakim Liebman, who was kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th and is held hostage, petitioned the agreement. In their appeal, they stated that, and I quote, there is a risk to the safety of the hostages who will remain at the hands of Hamas. Their claim is that it is absolutely clear that after a lull in the fighting, Hamas will no longer be motivated to release the other hostages. They further claim that these released terrorists will, and again I quote, return to carry out attacks in the future. They cite the Gilad Shalit deal, the Israeli soldier kidnapped by Hamas in 2006 and held for five and a half years. They say, and I quote again from the text of the appeal, in the Gilad Shalit exchange, the same released terrorist carried out the October 7th massacre. There's no reason why the current release of the terrorists will be any different this time. At least two of the appeals are not objecting the agreement itself, but they are objecting to the released prisoners, the terrorists, returning to their homes, which are adjacent to the homes of their victims. One specific example is that of a minor Palestinian girl that two years ago, at the age of 14, took a pair of scissors and stabbed a Jewish woman named Moria Cohen. Moria was injured. These two live in the same neighborhood in Jerusalem. They did not know each other before the attack. Moria says she will likely bump into the now 16-year-old female terrorist somewhere in the neighborhood. The Supreme Court thus far has decided against all the appeals. It is safe to assume the court will decide against all the future appeals as well. In the past, the court has always refrained from interfering in the decisions of the government regarding agreements on released Israeli hostages. What is the legal action needed to release the terrorists from Israeli prisons? So, the President of Israel needs to pardon those terrorists who were tried by civilian courts and sentenced to prison. 
However, the president is not authorized to pardon terrorists convicted in a military court. The only one who could do that is the Military Legal Advisor Office. Terrorists held in administrative detention or are still under investigation, like most of the Hamas terrorists caught on October 7, will be able to be released only if the government votes on it and approves it. Thus far, this is not relevant. Hopefully, it won't be relevant. Israel will most likely not concede to releasing them in future agreements. But never say never. At this point, I'd like to tell you about who brokered the agreement. The United States had a vital role. Hamas despises the United States, but it's dependent on Qatar, which is an ally of the United States. Qatar is interested in being a mediator and chalking up some points with the American government. As a side note, Qatar is a complicated player in the Middle East and has their hands all over the Middle East and the world. They are like an octopus with many tentacles. Just to remind you, that small nation of Qatar was able to convince FIFA, with a lot of money I'm sure, to hold one of the most viewed world sport events, the World Cup, just last year, of course, in Qatar. A senior official in the Biden administration said that the cooperation between the head of the Mossad, Teddy Barnea, and the head of the CIA, William Burns, was critical to the negotiation and the final agreement. President Joe Biden himself spoke on the phone 14 times with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, three times with the Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, and two times with the Emir of Qatar, Tamir bin Hamed el-Thani. The American administration confirmed that there were very difficult moments in the negotiations, especially when Hamas cut off contact and disappeared. But on November 17th, the talks resumed. You may ask, why did Hamas resurface? No doubt, whatsoever, it was due to the IDF military success pushing Hamas against the wall. When Hamas resurfaced, the Americans, who already had a negotiating team in Doha, the capital of Qatar, met face-to-face with the Qataris and together they went over all the details. The U.S. team was 24-7 in contact with Israel, coordinating all the details, but Qatar was not the only avenue. Brett McGurk, Biden's envoy to the Middle East, spoke with Egyptian intelligence chief Abbas Kamal. The Egyptians are also a very important player in the Middle East. Hamas hates them as well, since the Egyptians crush any Muslim brotherhood in Egypt itself, and of course, since Egypt has a peace treaty with Israel. But Hamas also needs Egypt. For instance, they need them for opening the Rafiyah crossing, which is the border between Egypt and Gaza. They need them to supply gasoline, medicine, water, and more. Perhaps they also need them to turn a blind eye to Hamas smugglers across the border. A concrete example of how Hamas needs Egypt is that in 2021, Egyptian President al-Sisi pledged $500 million for Gaza reconstruction efforts. Egypt plays a key role since any hostages released will be first brought across the border of Gaza into Egypt. American sources say that the release of the two American-Israeli hostages, Yehudita Anan and her daughter Natalie, from captivity about two months ago, was a pilot that led to the current deal. Furthermore, the American negotiating team will continue working on more agreements to release more hostages. Okay, 
So why is Hamas interested in this agreement? After all, Israel's committed to eliminating their military capabilities, their political rule, and physically eliminating their leadership. There is one man in Gaza who makes the final call, the final decision. His name is Yichye Sinwar. Who is he? Yichye Sinwar is Hamas leader in Gaza and second in command of the entire Hamas organization. He was one of the founders of Azadin al-Qassam Brigades, which is the military arm of the Hamas movement. Sinwar was the mastermind behind Hamas' brutal massacre on October 7. Five years earlier, in 2018, Sinwar declared to the world, and I quote, We will take down the border with Israel, and we will tear their hearts from their bodies. Sinwar was born in Khan Yunus refugee camp in southern Gaza Strip. For years, his main role in Gaza was to identify Palestinian collaborators with Israel. To do so, he helped found an organization that identified these Palestinians. He personally murdered Palestinian suspects. Needless to say, no trial or anything of the sort. Often, he killed the wrong people. For this, he was nicknamed the Butcher of Khan Yunus. Sinwar was also responsible for murdering two Israeli soldiers. He was caught and convicted to five life sentences in an Israeli prison. During his stay in prison, he was considered a powerful prisoner and a leader among the prisoners. He was known for abusing and using strong violence and cruel torture against those opposing him. Betty Lahat, retired Israeli police intelligence officer, told the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation, that's Channel 11 in Israel, that in 2008, while in prison, Sinwar complained of headaches. He was examined and was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He was taken to an Israeli hospital named Asaf Harofeh. The tumor was taken out successfully. Officer Lahat met with him in the hospital and was quite shocked since he appeared extremely fearful and very frail, very much unlike the tough, cruel man he always appeared to be. He was concerned very much for his recovery, and so Officer Lahat asked the doctor to meet with him. The Israeli doctor told him that his tumor was removed successfully and that his recovery should be full. His life was saved. I mention this only because there is a perception that these jihadist leaders are willing to be martyred and die. Not really. They are certainly willing to send others to their death. But themselves, their health, their life, that's another story. In 2011, as part of the Gilad Shalit deal, Sinwar was released to the Gaza Strip. Then he became a prominent Hamas figure. He was also officially recognized as a terrorist by the U.S. government in 2015. I will be blunt when I say that Israel sees him as a dead man walking. Due to Sinwar's key role in the massacring and brutalization of innocent children, women, and men, the IDF chief of staff, that's the commander of the Israeli Defense Forces, had recently stated, and I quote from the IDF spokesman, the heinous attack was orchestrated by Yehya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And so he and the entire system underneath him are dead men. We will target them, break them, and dismantle their system. Yehya Sinwar knows this very well. So, why does he want this agreement with Israel? It's not only the four days of ceasefire. He hopes that he can prolong the ceasefire as long as possible. During that time, he hopes that the world, 
mainly America, will pressure Israel to cease from fighting altogether. Folks, don't be surprised if you hear the media outlets during the ceasefire, like the BBC as one example, rile their troops, their reporters that is, to call constantly for a permanent ceasefire. They would flood the reports with photos from Gaza, some real, most fake. Photos and videos of weeping children smeared with blood, wailing pregnant women, older men and women just wanting to return to their destroyed homes, and of course, dead Palestinian civilians, or at least their claim that they are civilians. We've seen some of the dead miraculously be resurrected when they think the cameras are no longer shooting. Don't be surprised when more massive pro-Hamas demonstrations take again to the streets demanding a permanent ceasefire. Hamas knows only two things can ensure their survival. One, the world stops Israel. This is very unlikely since Israel is in total consensus that we will not stop until Hamas is gone. And two, holding on to some of the hostages as a life insurance policy for themselves. Folks, I'm trying to find the words that will explain how we Israelis, and I am sure that the Jewish world feels, about our kids, our women, our elderly, and our men being held hostage. We must bring them home. At the same time, we must figure out how to eradicate Hamas totally. October 7th and the aftermath have affected almost every single Israeli. I personally know of people who escaped from the music festival and survived. I know Israeli soldiers who were injured in Gaza and were hospitalized. And I also know of people who were murdered. A few days ago, two of the hostages were found dead. The Israeli Defense Forces have determined that Noah Marziano, the 19-year-old female soldier taken hostage to Gaza, was executed by Hamas at the Shifa Hospital. Noah was held in a structure adjacent to the hospital. The IDF determined that the structure was a Hamas stronghold, and therefore the IDF struck it from the air, not knowing that Noah was there. The strike resulted in one Hamas terrorist death and the injury of Noah. Noah was brought across the street to the hospital, and then, there, she was executed. Her murder wasn't just out of vengeance. Hamas attempted to stage it as if it was the Israeli Air Force that killed her. To them, this would have achieved several purposes. One is that the responsibility of the hostages are in Israel's hands. A second is to damage or rather yet to sink Israeli morale. And the third is to pressure the Israeli government to concede and stop the fire. But her body was found by the IDF. Forensic evidence shows multiple close-range gunshots. Hamas executed her. They murdered her. Another hostage, Yodit Weiss, was found dead as well. Like Noah, she was found adjacent to the Shifa hospital. To tell us about Yehudit and her husband Shmulik, I've invited my good friend and colleague, Yoram Preminger. Yoram, a few days ago, you sent me a text with a photo of yourself, Yehudit and Shmulik, all smiling, standing in a field of beautiful flowers. Can you tell us where that was? Yeah, that was in a, a kibbutz, near the kibbutz where they live, which is near, both kibbutzim are near the border with Gaza. Uh, they live in Kibbutz Be'eri, but nearby there's a kibbutz called Near Yitzchak, and that kibbutz grows uh, bulbs of uh, uh, buttercup flowers. So they have, in the season, they have these beautiful fields of uh, 
buttercup flowers and we just you know went there on one saturday for uh, uh it's very photogenic i did want to tell you how terrible i feel for your loss um can you tell us a little bit a little bit about your friends i've known both of them separately and then later together um, since uh, you know we were in the youth movement together i think shmulik joined in the eighth grade and you did a few years later during the years of high school so we were, uh, you know, in the same youth, youth movement together. Back then, there was a unit in the army called Nachal, which uh, the IDF conjunction with the kibbutz movements had this program where you do military service with your group from the youth movement. Part of your military service would be regular combat military service. And part of it, you'd be stationed, you'd be actually on a kibbutz, usually a border kibbutz. And the idea was that that way um, the kibbutzim, their population would be reinforced with the groups that came from the youth movements. And the, uh, the hope was that when the military service is over, some of the members of the groups would stay and choose to, you know, live their lives on those kibbutzim. So I stayed on the that kibbutz for just about a year after my military service. They stayed longer. Then they moved to kibbutz Berry. Berry is a uh, in the area you know, that borders with the Gaza Strip. And they had been living there for 25 years or so. Uh, and Shmulik was, uh, you know, we, we all serve in the reserve army until we're, uh, depending on what kind of unit we're in. Uh, since I was in an active combat unit, so, you know, when you get reach the age of 45, 46, they throw you away. You're not in good enough shape anymore. But I was together with Shmulik, and we do our reserve duty together uh, for all those years. Our last reserve duty was uh, in Operation uh, Defensive Shield. Um, and then we were notified that we're too old for that stuff anymore. Shmulik was was one of my closest friends, you know, one of my right. friends that I kept in touch with uh, uh, on a regular base. Um, I know that Shmulik was in his mid-60s, and so was his wife. And as far as I understand, they had kids and grandkids on the same kibbutz. They have five kids. Um, four of them actually live on the kibbutz. Smulik and you did have five grandkids. All of them live on kibbutz Berry. All of them were on the kibbutz on October 7th uh, when the when the attack occurred. Tell us about October 7th, what happened with Shmulik, what happened with Yudit. Well, first I'll, I'll need to mention that uh, Berry is the largest kibbutz in that in the area of the border with Gaza Strip, and therefore it was the largest number of terrorists that uh, attacked the kibbutz was there. More than 100, I think 108 was the figure that was given, invaded into the kibbutz, and there was only a small, you know, emergency uh, response team that was something like, 12 members of the kibbutz that were called to come and to, uh, it was usually their job or their responsibility would be to try to stop, install any kind of small scale incident that occurs until the IDF gets there. Nobody had ever envisioned that you have to go to battle with hundred, with, you know, more than a hundred of terrorists that came into the kibbutz from different directions. And um, Shmulik and Yudit went immediately at first, it was, it just seemed that was another day of uh, another one of those uh, launching of rockets. So they were all got the alert siren to go into their safe rooms. And that's what Shmulik and Yudi did. They had a family WhatsApp group. So they were communicating with each other 
all the time. Actually, Judith was, uh, you know, she was kind of the one that was communicating with all the kids, telling them there's apparently some kind of penetration into the kibbutz by some terrorists. Nobody, nobody realized right away what was happening, uh, that it was that kind of scale. So they said, go into, stay into your sealed rooms. And and they were communicating with each other through WhatsApp. Then they started hearing shootings and, and so on. And until about 10 or 10.30, they were all communicating with each other. And by 10.30, they got no more um, response from from the parents. A few days after uh, this all happened, Omer, one of their sons, went back to Bayri and went to their house just to see how it looked. And he went into their uh, mamad, into their safe room, and took some photographs from the inside of the door of the safe room. And you could see all the bullet holes in it. In other words, they shot, the terrorists shot through the doors. There was one bullet hole that was much smaller, and therefore we assumed that that was Shmulik who had a gun shooting back. But really, that's all we know. From that, you can try to uh, figure out what had happened, but nobody really knows the exact circumstances in which uh, Shmulik was murdered. 85 members from that kibbutz were, were murdered. And it took a while to um, identify all the bodies and also to separate the bodies from the bodies of the terrorists, all the terrorists, 108 of them uh, ended up being killed. But that was only in the battles that took place. Not only that same day, they were still, uh, the battles were still going on the following day or two, I think, until they were, all the terrorists were killed. But only a week and a half later was Schmuling's body identified. The hope was that Judith, who wasn't found, was kidnapped. There was no evidence uh, or proof that she was kidnapped alive. You know, some of the people that were kidnapped, you could see them on the footage that either the Hamas terrorists took or other, you know, there were, there's some footage of of people being kidnapped. Uh, Judith did not appear in any of these uh, that you could see, but they were hoping that she was alive and she was kidnapped to Gaza. That's all they knew. And then she was, like I said, she was found just a couple of days ago. Her body was found inside yes. Gaza, adjacent to the Shifa hospital. So what, yes. do, what, do you, what do they think had happened there? They don't even know if she was kidnapped alive or maybe murdered beforehand and then they just took the body or if she was taken into the Gaza Strip alive and then they murdered her. As of uh, yesterday, when the funeral took place, they didn't really know uh, more than that. How's the family? You were at the funeral, Shiva call. How do, how is the family doing? They're all really together supporting each other. They're the five uh, kids and five grandkids. And and now they're very uh, supportive of all the other, other families of those that were kidnapped. And they're, you know, they still appear on in the media and, and you know, talk about the the necessity of making, you know, getting, saving the hostages, bringing them back home as quickly as possible. Uh, one last question, Yolam. Um, did did, um, did the kids, and the kids are adults, obviously, did they talk at all about returning to the kibbutz and living there in the future? Yeah, they're all together, the members of Kibbutz Berry at the Dead Sea, living as a community. That's what they're looking forward to. To eventually going back to so another sad story and uh, but a story of sadness and yet a story of strength. Yonam, thanks for uh, for sharing the story with us. Thank you. 
We hear these stories and we realize why Israel is doing what it is doing. Israel has had two goals for this war. One is to return all the hostages. And two, to obliterate any military capability and the leadership of the Hamas. Only then will Israeli society start on a long path of healing. Thank you for listening. This episode can be listened to on any of the podcast media players such as Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and Google. You can also access it on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast would love to have your support. You can log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the support tab.